Joseph, could you tell, just to begin, maybe a little bit about yourself, your family, whatever you feel comfortable in sharing in terms of your experience on Treaty 6, your relationship to this land? But my family history begins with where I was born in Sturgeon Lake First Nation. We call it Paktahosagaygan, or Net Casting Lake. I was raised by my mother and my father very briefly, and then I was given to my grandparents. So my grandparents raised me for the first part of my life, you know. I was raised with my uncles and aunts and people of Sturgeon Lake First Nations. Yeah, I never really understood what happened, but I know at seven months that my mother gave me up to my grandparents. I think some of it had to do with my father having left my mother, who worked at lumber camps in BC. In some ways, I feel fortunate to have been raised by old people. This established the foundation for all the things that I would experience in the future. What was it like growing up in the Sturgeon Lake First Nations Reserve? I was sort of in the cusp to transition, you know, from traditional to modern way of living. So I was living really right off the land. I mean, that's just the way it was, you know. We were very much living off the land in the Waskasoo area, in Chandra Lake. All these places that have uh, colonizers' names now. So I was raised within the language, hunting and gathering lifestyle, and also with the fishing. So we also had a lot of fish in that time. And also my grandmother was a medicine picker, a herbalist. And my grandfather, he had responsibility within the Sundance as a faith keeper or a pipe keeper, someone who had knowledge about the ceremony that happened. So I'm sure we have songs that are still with us today. And I still sing some of those songs. Could you maybe describe his role as the, you said sun dancer, is that right? Kind of a, yeah, you could say not so much a dancer. This is more the sun dance ceremonial leader. He would have been one of the ceremonial leaders, which meant that he would be asked to pray, to sing, and he would be asked to be involved throughout this four days, usually a four-day fast, and people would come to dance, you know, to renew connection to the land and so my grandfather had a important role. You see, at six years old, I was removed right from the community. So what I saw was he would have sat at the gravesite and we'd have a feast for the ones that passed on ahead of us. So he was involved in more of the uh, ceremonial, sacred music, sacred prayer. Then at a young age, you were taken away from the community? Yeah, about five or six years old. I can't remember. I think it might have been five. I was kidnapped by the Canadian government, taken to mm-hmm. Prince Albert to go to school and be educated. Yeah. 13 years I went. This was a residential school. Also, Anglican and Indian residential school. It used to be called St. Albans as well. And then they turned it to Prince Albert and Indian student residence. When you were kidnapped by the Canadian government, as you said, you lost your contact with your loved ones, with your relatives and your community. Were you also deprived of language in that situation? Oh boy. Truly, that means the truth, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, it wasn't really as enforced as in some schools. You just got the feeling that you weren't supposed to speak their language. And so I got used to it. For some reason, it wasn't the same anyway, but to speak. You get this feeling. People are speaking a different language. Even myself was trying to learn, you know, through immersion, right? English immersion. 
how long were you actually in the residential school away from your family? From September till June for 13 years. Yeah. So I can speak my language now. So the language has returned after the winter residential course. 13 years to learn about the Canadian culture, the Canadian language, and the Canadian way of knowing. Put my regalia back on, and I went back into Nihiawin, the free way of seeing and knowing. So I went directly back into it. There was no choice when I was in my 20s. That was the choice. We entered into my Cree culture. Well, you know, David, when you're in a compromised position, you know, just coming out of residential school, all the memory and the trauma and the uh, new way of being, all that has to be confronted or somehow, as you say in university, navigated, you know, which is a good word, that I experience have to be dealt with. You know, really, I didn't consciously try to learn the language because I wasn't at that point mentally and emotionally. I was just I was just trying to keep above water. I just knew that something had happened and great disruption. And disruption had to do with language and had to do with culture. It had to do with my Cree history, my Cree culture, my Cree background. And so that's what I was doing. And it was much later, maybe in my 30s, that I would consciously... And sometimes, you know, I deliberately tell children, I've been doing it for about 40 years, how important it was to get to know the language of the people here and the songs of the people and the stories. So I became making part of my mission to live the way that my grandparents had raised me. For me, it didn't make any sense to do anything else, you know, to be a fireman or a policeman or some kind of Indian affairs official. That wasn't my interest at all. Joseph, it is an inspiring story. It speaks to the resilience of the human spirit that you were able to come back from that. We are resilient. We are resilient, David. We are. Because suddenly, you know, you're taken away and you all of a sudden have a different family. Your peers, all the residential school participants, the ones that were kidnapped as well, they were the ones that were my brothers and sisters. And that's all I knew. Surrogate parents, you know, the uh, matrons, the kitchen help, you know, the child care workers, all those people, the evening, the evening, night watchmen, became my surrogate family, you know, and community. I needed them, you know, that we needed each other. As kids, you know, who don't get hugged or told a story every night, something that you were used to. Or like you say, you know, we're resilient, right? So I, I was resilient. I got to know the people. They got to know us. We, be, we became a family, even though it was uh, more like a distant thing. We just sort of depended on each other. We depended on this for employment. We depended on them for what affection we could get. Have you been involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Did you do a testimony for that commission? More at arm's length. I've been involved periodically. Sometimes they'll call me as I became a speaker and entertainer, performer, was called to do that. This also has become kind of a community, the TRC group, and around here, like Eugene and Rona are kind of taking up the torch, you know, to really organize survivors of around Saskatoon and Saskatchewan. But primarily, I've been kind of on my own. So, Joseph, 
I know that you describe yourself as a storyteller. What are your skills that made you a storyteller? What is your own philosophy of what storytelling is and the value it contributes to the community? I think there are certain people within cultures, I have to be one of them, that had the knack to tell a story and also had the knack to listen. With elders, for whatever I heard, it seemed to translate into a story. I could remember it, you know, I can just hear it once and I'd remember it. And when I saw people explaining as if they're lecturing, I had a friend trying to put up a teepee and explaining this part and you know, a more technical way of doing it. I watched the kids and I noticed that they were not really engaged. So to me, it was important that kids are engaged or whoever is listening, you can feel that they're part of the story. So my philosophy, unless you have that engagement, then you don't really have a storyteller. You know, you just have a lecturer, or even professors can be storytellers. My uncle was a storyteller. He was a hunter and a gatherer and a sweat lodge keeper. And he would tell these stories in absolutely perfect Cree. I can't do that. So what I do is a hybrid of Cree and English. I do the best I can with the Cree language. When you hear the old language, unbelievable how much detail that they put into a story. You're right there. You can go right to that place where they're talking about. So I grew up, you know, kind of innocently and unknowingly into storytelling. My father was even a speaker. After he dried up, you know, he was an alcoholic for so many years. And then he would be asked to speak of his experience of his life. They had to give him a timer. Andy, you got to speak for just 20 minutes, not two hours. So he would just keep on going. The timer would go off. He'd just keep on going. <laughs> and my mother at this point is in her 80s. Now she's telling me stories. So we've always had storytelling in the periphery. We had initially really terrible stories. And those stick with me, you know, the ones about lateral violence, alcoholism. I went through that whole life seeing my uncles and aunts become alcoholics and then sober up. I've seen the whole cycle of I would tell these stories, and I'll talk about them openly. The best stories I find come from the heart. And those are your family stories and your elders, you know, those stories that the old people tell you. The toughest story, ultimately, is your own story. That's the one that's the most important. You need to own your own story. Share it with just absolute truth and no delineations, you know. You cannot make up your own story. I find also storytelling is healing. Storytelling helped me to bring back my voice. Storytelling yeah. helped me to at least pass on what the old people were passing on to help me. So that's my philosophy in a nutshell there, David. I like the way that you compared the storyteller to the lecturer, that the storyteller can see in the eyes of the people listening that they become a part of the story. And that's engagement. Like you said, maybe a good lecturer is partly a storyteller, but yeah. maybe sometimes they become too much of a lecturer. They don't have that level of engagement where people are becoming a part of the story. I think that's really a wonderful way of imparting the great value of storytelling. From here, what I'd like to ask you, obviously, colonialism and uh, white settlers have been causing a lot of harm and damage to the world that we live in with pollution and, and so on, and also social damage. Things like the residential school, so harmful. 
Is there a story that we need to hear? Is there a story for changing our direction, for being more mindful of the land? Yeah, you know, there have been a lot of talk about that. Why the Canadian or cousins are, I guess, behaving in the way that they do. You know, it comes from someplace. Often our people say they forgot their God somewhere. You know, the Mohawks, for example, I'll say they're still around eight or nine years old. Tom Porter, because they're about eight or nine years old in terms of their understanding and ability to become part of the land here with the indigenous people. I thought that was a good metaphor. Pretty accurate, you know, when you think about it. Canadian people, they kind of lost their way somewhere with putting away their elders, locked away in these places. They put away their strength. They put away their knowledge to maneuver in this land. Those old people, I'm sure they would have something to share after 80, 90 years. That's our foundation. Our foundation are the elders. Without our elders, I wouldn't be where I'm at. You know, they guide us. They guide completely every aspect of who we are, what the community does. Now I'm in that role. It's like an unconscious thing that young people will sense something about you that says, oh, there's my grandfather, or there's my grandmother, there's my knowledge keeper. That's built in. I feel that. It's still here, David. And Canadians, by the end of their days, you know, the old people kind of go off into old folks' home, and that's it. You rarely visit them. Yet when we go and visit our elders, we visit them for four years minimum <laughs> to become a student. And it's not biological, you know, our grandparents are all the old people on the land. It doesn't matter what culture. Mm-hmm. So that needs to return within the Canadian culture. I think it's slowly happening. You know, I just continue to call everybody my brother or sister, like, you're my brother, David. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no question about that, but we're not from the same parents, right? You're my brother from another mother, you know, that sort of <laughs> Human beings are in that way connected. So I think that's what I spent with the story of Canada. You know, where are your elders? Are you getting their knowledge, seeking that out, you know? Are the Senate in Ottawa the elders? Or are they just a rubber stamp? Do you have Marie Sinclair, who's an amazing person, incredible mind, you know? These are the people that need to be guiding the politicians how to work with our people. Not Justin Trudeau, you know, not the politicians. They're coming from their own training. It's more business-related, economics-related. They don't see the whole picture. That's how I see it. I've been here for six to seven years, and I've seen all the changes, and I've seen how government doesn't listen to our people. They don't listen to us. We signed a treaty, which meant we're two sovereign nations. You know, we're supposed to sit down together and decide on issues of land, issues of uh, water. It was supposed to be like that the outset. Has it ever happened? Back in the 1950s, Federation of Saskatchewan Indian Nations, League of Saskatchewan Indian Nations, John B. Tatusis, people like that, David Henneke, Saul Sanderson, Carol Sanderson. Even them, I think, dependent on what the government state would decide rather than the elders. They didn't always listen to the elders. They made agreements outside of that. So this is where we are. Yeah. Colonized country, you know, it's still not on an equal level. I don't know if I'll see that, but kick the bucket. <laughs> In terms of Treaty 6, that promise that you spoke of, that these sovereign nations would decide together about the use of water, about the use of land, 
and that that has never come to pass, there's something kind of poisonous inside of the colonial mindset. In a word, it's capitalism, the appropriation of land and water and things that we need to live, that we just see them as dollar signs and nothing more. It's more physical, material, monetary. Those are things that to us are not important. They're there as a resource, but they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is your spiritual connection to yourself and to the land and to how you go about your life. It's in the language and it's also in the worldview. You know, it's everything that I do. For example, when I first got up, you know, now we're going to talk about the treaty. I was preparing my smudge, the plants from the land here. Summertime, we pick all these medicines. But I have a special smudge that we call a thunder smudge, and I, I burned that to clear the house here. I burned inside the house and also smudged myself. I actually took a white cloth and hung it up for this discussion because in the old way, the old people would have had a sacred pipe, and they would go into a teepee, and they would do the same as I'm doing, smudge their teepee, and then smudge everybody, which is kind of like an incense. This is a centering tool the centering herb that puts everybody into one state of mind, one state of being. And then you pray to something outside of yourself. You could call it Semanto, or you can call it Jesus, or Buddha, or Allah. But you pray, and then you begin your discussion after that. But first, you have to prepare your place. That's what I find the fundamental difference with indigenous and non-indigenous. You have to give thanks each day. You have to watch where you're going that day. How are you going to walk? Even in the city here, wherever you go, or even when you're out on a land picket medicine, you've got to watch how you think. So those are the things that are standard for us. Well, first of all, let me just respond. Thank you so much for honoring this meeting with that preparation with the smudge. I'm really touched by that, and I appreciate that. So thank you. I wanted to bring this into the present moment thinking about dealing right now with this coronavirus pandemic. There's a lot of health concern. When these kinds of crises occur, it causes a certain amount of soul searching. Young people now are saying enough to police violence, and they're protesting that Black Lives Matter. There seems to be change in the air. What are your hopes for this younger generation when you meet them and talk to them? Yeah, I do keep on top of these issues that I see on Facebook or on Twitter. I pay attention to that. And one of the things that I guess myself, for young people, is not to get angry. One of the things you have to be really careful of is just not to come from a place of anger and frustration and that be your response or reaction. Don't approach something when you're not in a proper emotional state. And we were told at some point that young people need to return to the places with spiritual practice, with traditional knowledge, with their old people's stories. There's still a lot of old people around that have the knowledge and the skills and the know-how to deal with difficult situations like we're going through right now. Arm yourself with something like that. You're going to go into it much stronger, much healthier as well. It's not about violence. Not about reacting towards the authority. You have to understand why we are in the place that we are. Where did we come from to arrive at this point? The old people said, 
Utinigan in the future is a Kispingaki Wawiwa. Young people didn't prepare themselves. It'll be too late. They would have nothing to stand on. Just have no way of making sense of what's going on in this time. And so you might have suicide. People resorting to alcohol or drugs is a way of medicating themselves. People just need to go to the land, you know, be part of the land. Let the land teach you. You're not as if going out there to go and camp and like a picnic or anything like that. You're going there to commune with the land, with the spirits of the land. They're still there and they can help you if you ask for them. There, there are a lot of ancestors out there. So that's how I view it, you know, David. Like if I don't go to my sweat lodge, I feel empty or I feel like something is missing in my life. I'm glad that you invited me toward the discussion because I pulled out my pipe you know, and I smudged it sitting here with us. So those are the things that I'm conscious of. You need me and I need you. Like we still need each other in this country. Let's not become too divided, but let's just see ourselves as human beings. Let's continue to return to our elders. You know, they're the ones who guide us. So that's what I would really advocate. Right now, it's medicine picnic time. You know, never mind all the media and Facebook. There are trauma and drama. You know, go out and be with the land, be with the water. Make offerings. Just calm yourself down and strengthen yourself. Maybe just before we say goodbye for today, I wanted to put this back in your court, as it were. And just if you wanted to add anything about your own knowledge of Treaty 6 or of this land. Well, there must have been a reason, you know, to uh, have one elder to say to me, you're in two worlds. And the world that I come from, he was saying to me in Cree, he was from Paipot, George Manti. He says, you know the Canadian culture, you know the Canadian people. And you also know my world, the Cree way of knowing. It says, it would be good for you to translate and to educate the general Canadian public about our culture, our stories, our songs, our language. And to me, that was uh, like a gem about treaties because he understood, he saw something. And he, he realized also that our songs, our stories, very important, I mean, our spiritual practices are very important to this land, to Canadians. They need to know our story because they didn't, right? To me, that's saying a lot about treaties. We're all kind of together in this. We're going to be needing each other, you know. I speak your language, David, and you have to learn to speak a little bit of my language. So we'll kind of come together, you know, a bit more in a friendly way, in a kinder way. But generally right now, we're still learning the English culture, the English language, the colonizer's way of doing things, we're still there. There's a movement towards more integrated bicultural, bilingual way of understanding our being together here. We have to go there. There's no other choice. If they don't, everything else doesn't really matter. Like, for example, in this creek, right, in this one lake, they're going to just decimate the trees all around that beautiful land there. You know, that's my area there. My grandmother used to go pick medicine. The government here is just going to jerk at that whole area around this beautiful lake, which is owned now by musicians and farmers around that area. This is 2020, and it's just still happening, right? 
that's horrifically not going with the treaty. That's totally against treaty. Like they're not even approaching our elders to get consent, you know. They would say flatly, no, do not touch that land whatsoever. Don't go near it. But still, this government thinks that they're in control. Yeah. And they're doing what they're doing because that's all they know. They don't know their elders. Not a very nice thing to say about our, my cousins, Canadians. But this happens year after year, day after day.